All right. Good morning. Uh, today I'm going to continue reading through or continuing the series on Nisargadat Maharaj. And I realized, although it was in front of my nose all the time, that the first half of the page from which I've been reading the wisdom passages, 1 through 200, which last week ended on 69, and next time I pick up, it will be at about at, at wisdom passage 70, quote 70. Uh, the first half of that page, which is like 16 sections, is a very intensive um, biography of Nisargadat Maharaj, and written by a fellow Maharashtran, uh, someone from Maharashtra, the great Rashtra of India. <clears throat> and it's a very in-depth um, biography uh, from this uh, one man's perspective. And the, the one who wrote it seems to be G.K. Damodara Rao, or Rao, G.K. Damodara Rao, um, also a Maharashtrian uh, native. And I think I want to read these 16 sections over. Uh, it's an interesting um, set of uh, reminiscences or uh, biographical facts and um, a story of life of Nisargadat that complements uh, David Godman's reminiscences, where uh, he is a Western devotee, seeker, coming to India, going to different gurus, uh, where we went through his uh, interview with Harriet, talking about his experiences with Nisargadat, comparing a little bit his time with Nisargadat with his... Um, time uh, at the ashram of Ramana Maharshi or Ramanashramam. And so <clears throat> we've got a Western student's perspective. Now with this bio on this page, innerquest.org, nisarga.mg, uh, a biography of the life of Nisargadat from a fellow Maharashtran um, individual who was himself a seeker and a disciple or devotee. And that's really um, complementary. And then we have uh, these pearls of wisdom of teaching of Nisargadat. And you can really get a sense of how he came to be the way he was to some degree, how Nisargadat came to his own <clears throat> uh, being the kind of teacher he was or being himself <laughs> as teacher, as a yani, uh, at the, uh, in the second part of his life, which is what gave us these uh, 200 quotations or teachings at the bottom of the same page. So this is the perhaps final um, shift <laughs> or, or lateral move um, in this series on Nisargadat, which was going to go on for a while, another several, half a year or more, maybe. Because first I have to get through the bio <clears throat> in, I think, 16 sections, and then go back to the teachings 70 through 200. But it's it's beautiful stuff if you really want deep Advaita Vedanta teaching and 
to see the formation of a guru in, by his personal process or his life and um, journey, personal journey through this in, through the la- that incarnation. So uh, what I'll do is just start it on up and read through as much as we can today and um, go on. Just as an overview, <clears throat> this um, uh, presentation of his life and biography um, has these sections. Uh, early life history, daily routine, daily program, Maharaj's teachings, pearls from Maharaj's lips, and then it kind of goes back to his life. Some less known facts in Maharaj's life becomes Maruti Rao Shet, commonly in India or in many Eastern traditions, people take new names as they go along the way, meets his guru, leaves for Pandarpur, returns home, becomes known as Maharaj to his disciples, performs Saptata, Saptataha, Saptaha, arrival of Maurice Friedman, who was the one who compiled Tatvamasi, miracles of Maharaj, the last days, the last moments, and then wisdom, which is the section of 200 teachings, which I'll return to. So, let's start it up. <clears throat> Introduction. And again, this was prepared by G.K. Damodaro Ro, or Rao. So, though a Maharashtrian myself, Mr. Rao says, it was a matter of great shame for me that I had not known of this great Maharashtrian Yani, a self-realized being, Nisargadat Maharaj, till March 1992. I was waiting for Bhagawan's morning darshan as usual at Brindavan Ashram, so he too was a student of um, Ramana Maharshi. A friend of mine sitting next to me was poring over the pages of a fairly bulky book. I gave a sly glance at the book, unwilling to disturb him. I found the title of the book, I Am That, Tatvamasi. This roused my curiosity about the author's name, meaning who was the author. I found the author to be Maurice Friedman whose name sounded very familiar to me. I was a frequent visitor to Sri Ramanashramam, the ashram of Ramana Maharshi at Tiruvannamalai, Tamil Nadu, in the early years between 1944 and 1948, when I was a judicial officer there, in that town. I had seen him there, though I had not talked to him, meaning Ramana Maharshi. My friend somehow sensed that I was anxious to look into the book and to my great joy handed me the book. I pored over the pages at random and found found precious pearls of wisdom on the few pages I happened to browse. This is the genesis of this book, meaning the book that is put on this website, the seeds of which were sown about a year ago. I had no intention whatever of writing this book, my ceaseless remorse at not knowing about the existence of Maharaj earlier haunted me. <clears throat> Added to this was a sense of pride that he belonged to my community, the Maharashtrians. Nearly about a lakh, a lakh I think is a hundred thousand, Maharashtrians live scattered in places like Madras, Bangalore, Tanjore, North Arkat, and Krishnagiri district, South India, all this, and a few other places. A strange urge to write about this great Yanni took possession of me. I was anxious that I should make him known to the people of the South, 
who were utterly unaware of his existence. <laughs> Many great souls are unaware, are, are unrecognized by nearly everyone in their community. <clears throat> they could scarcely believe that such a great soul lived a by-lane in the city of Bombay, avoiding publicity. It sounds somewhat paradoxical that people in the Western world knew more about him than his own countrymen in India. We have ourselves to blame for this situation. If by publishing this book I've aroused some interest in him, in the people of the South, and dispelled the unpardonable ignorance about him, I will deem it that I have achieved something. May the ever-merciful Maharaj forgive us in his infinite grace and make us aware of his sublime teachings. <clears throat> Lots of guru-based people are very flowery. It remains for me to express my gratitude to all my friends and well-wishers who are anxious that I should publish this book for the benefit of all concerned. I must first thank my very good friend, Mr. Krishnamurti. I don't think it's the other Krishnamurti, who was instrumental in typing the manuscript for this book. He did it in such a perfect way that not a word needed correction. I must next thank Mr. Hans Berholm and his wife Lillian from Denmark, a highly spiritual person, for all the moral support they gave me in encouraging me to write about this great Yanni. Next, I must thank other friends and well-wishers who took a keen interest in the publication of this book. I must also thank my good friend Mr. C.S. Ramakrishnaya of the Gita Press. And this was written by G.K. Damodaro Rao. <clears throat> As usual, I will learn about what I'm doing uh, as the time goes on, so I'm not even sure the formal title of this book from Gita Press, but I'll uh, figure it out later, I guess. It's chapter 1, Early Life History. Vanamali Mansion, 10th Lane, Ketwadi in Bombay, became a landmark for many persons who were seekers of the spirit. Here lived Nisargadat Maharaj a great yani in relative obscurity in the early years of his life. <clears throat> in, the year, in those early years, he was running a small bidi or cigarette shop offering a variety of hand-rolled tobacco, which poor people smoke. Me too. In fact, Maharaj himself was a chain smoker. It is to the credit of the late Maurice Friedman that he discovered Maharaj in his wanderings in quest of a guru. He visited Sri Ramanashramam and Ganesh Puri, the Nashram of Nityananda, and other spiritual centers until he came to Bombay, having heard about Maharaj. With some difficulty, he found the lane where Maharaj lived. He was very intrigued that a great soul like Maharaj should live in such squalor and stench in a by-lane in Bombay instead of in the Himalayas. Maharaj was a pious man dressed in simple clothes and steeped all the time in meditation and atma-vichara. <clears throat> atma-vichara, also called at, um, at, uh, atma-vichara. Atma-char, atma-vichara. Self-inquiry. So atma meaning like atman or self, and vichara is vichara, uh, inquiry, investigation, which was the same as uh, taught by Ramana Maharshi, or very similar kind of uh, looking in. The or looking clear, the surroundings on which he lived did not in the least bother him. He lived aloof in his loft room, totally detached from the noisy world around. <clears throat> Visitors, both foreign and Indian, sought his company. 
It was an interesting sight to see gleaming Mercedes cars glide gracefully with their rich owners in search of number 10 Ketwadi Lane. It is said that Maharaj refused to talk about himself, and such information as could be got was only from the early devotees, most of whom were ordinary poor people who used to go to the shop to purchase beaties. <clears throat> During the course of the purchase, Maharaj used to draw them into conversation, as shopkeepers often do. The peculiarity of Maharaj was that he would speak mainly in Adyatimic, Adyatimic, Adyatmic, Adyatmic. There's some strange uh, writings of certain Sanskrit words that are not commonly written the same way in English. Adyatmic, it means Atmic, Atmanic, meaning of Atman. He would speak mainly on Atmanic subjects, and there would be no idle gossip, as is the want of poor villagers and and rich city dwellers too. <clears throat> he never used to encourage it, with the result that there used to be a small band of earnest seekers standing in front of the shop, listening in awe to the pearls of wisdom that fell from his lips. It was indeed an unusual sight in those days to see persons who came to purchase beaties stay for hours listening in rapt attention to Maharaj. Maharaj explained great truths in very simple language. Some of the old people living in the locality were almost daily visitors to his shop and were mesmerized by his talks and would not leave him until they were compelled to go and attend to their daily avocations. <clears throat> From the available materials, we are able to gather that Maharaj was born on a full moon in March 1897. Very, very close to the time Nityananda was born, by the way. <coughs> His birthday coincided with the auspicious day of Hanuman Jayanti, the birthday of Hanuman, and he was therefore named as Maruti. It's a phrase honorific to Hanuman, I guess. His childhood was spent in a village called Kandalgaon, Kandalgaon a short distance from Bombay, right? so Maharashtra. <clears throat> it is said that his father moved to that village at the time of the plague, when somebody who was anxious to know about the date of birth of Maharaj, probably an astrologer, persisted in asking him about it, Maharaj replied bluntly that he was never born. A highly abstruse philosophical statement, which most of us cannot understand. Thinking of his declaration deeply, one is led to think that Maharaj referred to the unborn, undying self or Atmana, not to the body. Anyway, Many of his devotees left, left it at that and did not try to find out the exact date of his birth. He was never born. I is birthless. I is deathless. The nature of the presence of the speaker. All. You as a speaker. I as speaker. Any being as speaker. Or not speaker. Or thinker. Or knower. Um, the knower is unborn. The knower is the creator of light. Light is born and dies. And so, uh, form, energy, light, the nature of all energy is light, Ra said. And so, the nature of all form, matter, matter or its deeper hidden um, form is energy. So, body, material form, is undergird or substanded by energy fields and waves and fields and vibration. That energy, its nature is light. That light is born of one infinite creator, 
Brahma, Logos, uh, one of Intelligent Infinity. That's the speaker. Uh, the source is true identity. True nature is source. The source of light is not born because it's not light. So, of course, I was never born. I is on. I is deathless. The I is deathless. Of course. What else is it? What else? What else remains when all the forms have fallen away and all the delusions are gone? The one, the one that made light, the one that is that made creation, and that is not a matter of birth and death. That's the the source of the realms of birth and death. <clears throat> so, in a remnant going on, in a, in a reminiscent mood, Maharaj used to say. I remember being carried on my father's shoulders, which I enjoyed greatly. His father was a poor agriculturalist and died, meaning farmer, I think, and died in 1915. As the income of the family was found, and so he, he died when Misakadat was about 18, we say, we say date of 1897, <clears throat> died in 1915, his father, so by 18 his father passed away, passed over. As the income of the family was found insufficient, the family had to go back to Bombay to earn their livelihood. Maruti, and this is another term for Maharaja, uh, for Nisargadat, Maruti joined a private firm as a clerk, <clears throat> but he had to leave it because, uh, because of his independent temperament. Right, So you see a uh, strong will from day one. He often used to say, quote, better one day of independence than a lifetime without freedom. Hmm. So this is um, strong will and strong self-trust. And this is necessary uh, to uh, make attainment in a single lifetime or to make attainment rapidly. <clears throat> uh, strength of will, which is um, born of um, strength of self-trust, which is born of honesty. There's no... You can't trust yourself if you're dishonest about yourself. Self-deceivers are not self-trusting. Self-deceivers are not self-trusting. And that's what we see in leadership globally. Self-deceivers, deceiving the masses, um, are weak. And actually, <clears throat> uh, they, um, <laughs> they stand on a weak foundation. It's better one day of independence than a lifetime without freedom, he said. Being a Maharashtrian by birth, yeah, they're commonly strong-willed too. Being a Maharashtrian by birth and belonging, as he did to the great Shivaji's clan, his view of life is not surprising. Yes, there's a lot of people in Maharashtra who are strong-willed. Shivaji, I don't know. Maruti, or Nisargadat, grew up almost without education. As a boy, he tended cattle, worked in the fields with his father, and was a real son of the soil. His pleasures were equally simple. But it is said by people who knew him as a young man that he had an inquisitive mind, anxious to know about the mysteries of life, its pleasures and sorrows. Maruti, Nisargadat, so I'll, I'm going to keep saying, he keeps using the term Maruti, um, which may have to do with Maharashtrian, maybe a, an endearment term uh, for Maharashtrians. Maruti started later in the in this bio, I think he explains it more. Maruti started a business venture 
in selling beedies in a shop owned by him in Katwadi Lane. Luck smiled on him, and he soon became the owner of eight more shops. Then he got married and had four children. Though his business was prosperous and the life was comfortable, a vague sense of something missing in his life haunted him. He sought the help of his learned Brahmin friend, Vishnu Gur, who kindled in him questions regarding the world outside, man and God. Then he befriended another friend, Yashwant Rao. I think Rao, honestly, is, a, is not an unusual uh, family name in Maharashtra. He befriended another friend, Yashwant Rao, who took to him to the great and holy Siddharameshwar Maharaj, a realized soul, Siddharameshwar, a realized soul, who initiated him into the mysteries of life, God and karma, and gave him a mantra. This was the turning point in his life, and he took Siddha Shri, he took Shri Siddha Rameshwar Maharaj as his guru, and clung to him as his guru, or clung to him till his guru attained Mahasamadhi in 1936. So in 1936, uh, Nisargadatta was almost 40. And 39 is commonly a um, important turning point. There are all sorts of ages that have importance uh, in the incarnation as sort of um, pivot points, crossroads, um, cycle end start points. Uh, 13 times 3, 39 is common. 13, right? Beginning of adolescence. Times 3. 3 is a big, big number. I think um, Tesla said something like, if you understand three, you understand the universe. Of course, <laughs> three made the, made the light. Light is a born of three. The three, the one, make, the one through three makes the seven, and the seven is, um, you know, the, the basis of all creation. So he clung to him as guru, or clung to him till his guru attained Masamadi in 1936. So he was without guru from age 39 or so. Uh, the following year, Maruti suddenly decided to abandon his family and also his prosperous business, so around age 40, and wandered about aimlessly visiting temples and places of religious interest. His mind was restless. He traveled north, determined to spend his time in the Himalayas and never come home. It is said that he walked barefoot in the Himalayan region. There he happened to meet a fellow disciple of his guru, who told him that such wandering was of no avail and was really not necessary for a spiritual aspirant. <laughs> Somebody who knows better. He suggested that Maharaj should go back home and live an active life as a householder. He advised selfless service to the poor, which was far more meaningful. After deep thought, Maruti, or Nisargadat, returned back to Bombay. He found all his shops taken away, except one. But he was not in the least perturbed, and got reconciled to the situation, and calmly decided that one shop was enough for his worldly needs. It's an interesting story, right? He went from a householder married with children and prosperous business to renouncing it all to coming back to it all. After some time, when his son was able to look after the shop, he retired to his small loft or small loft room in the house, the top of the house which uh, David Godman talked about all the time, which later became an ashram to the devotees, both Indian and foreign, who came to him. He lived in this small room till his final nirvana in 1981. 
It is of some importance to note that he did not yield to the persuasions of some of the rich Bombay devotees who owned palatial residences with marble flooring to come and stay with them. He refused their request, as only a yani would, and continued to live in his small loft room in the lane, Ketwadi Lane. <clears throat> so, 1981. That's interesting. <laughs> he left in 81, and I started practice in serious way in 81. Yeah, a lot of stuff was going on in the, around that time, <laughs> as far as I know. Daily routine. Next chapter. Let me go on and see what the time is. All right. This is a very nice story. You know, I, I don't prepare fully before I do these talks, if you've noticed. So, listening, you, you, you're listening the first time, or you're listening at the first time, you're hearing me encountering much of, or nearly all of this for the first time too. And so, if I fall on my nose, so be it. And if I understand, so be it. And after a few passes, I understand more. <clears throat> uh, but it's beautiful. It's it's written really well, and it's better better than the interview with David. I'd say for me, meaning I don't connect so much with the wandering, you know, guru seeking. Um, but I this this is a really nice to see how Nisargadot, uh, the personal how how the the course of the personal that led to that mind uh, being. Uh, knowing uh, as a yani uh, what it knew and spoke as it spoke um, in those 200 wisdom teachings down the page. Daily routine. Going on. Maharaj used to get up at 4 a.m. It's said that he used the public toilet in the street opposite his residence, sometimes not minding the stench emanating from such toilets, especially in Bombay by lanes, meaning small lanes. We have to linger here and spend some time or some thought on his courage and sense of detachment in using a public latrine, which is commonly used by all poor folk living in the congested locality. He bathed in the kitchen, as there was no bathroom. Persons who have such no some knowledge of these dirty public latrines with unbearable stench associated with them should ponder over his product, ponder is so... This is part of what happens when I'm reading new, like you, hearing that I find typos and strange things that uh, trip me up a bit. So let me read the first sentence again here. Persons who have some knowledge of these dirty public latrines with unbearable stench associated with them should ponder over his product in refusing the luxury. It's not his product. It's his... Uh, act of refusing the luxury of marble floors and posh bathrooms and preferring to be, quote, himself and live like a monk in a cell in a very small apartment with no relative comforts. Except, you know, everybody's got their take here, so I'm not sure. Not every monk lives like him. Except for a loft room which can hardly accommodate 20 persons to which he escaped when devotees, both foreign and Indian, came, meaning another room, above the teaching room, there was hardly any decent accommodation in the modern sense. It was a really cramped, small place. Devotees who have visited Maharaj often have told me that he was totally dead to his surroundings. If foreigners could come all the way from their country and hunt out the obscure 10th lane in the Ketwadi area, 
unmindful of the dirt and squalor, it only shows their genuine interest in Maharaj. Indeed. Maharaj did not wear saffron clothes or beads as sadhus wandering around Siyats do. He had no particular pose at all. He was a humble householder who dressed in ordinary clothes like the poor people in the locality. When we think of it, it's difficult to understand the personality of Maharaj. Um, yeah, because he's not... Um, he, 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 he's completely authentic to his own true nature which is same and different than anyone else, true nature. I mean, true nature is same, but everyone took a different path up the mountain, or takes a different path up the mountain. Wherever he is, at the mountain peak, or over the mountain, or finished, uh, I don't know. But each path to the summit is unique. Uh, each being is unique. There decisions course being unique means that they arrive at the same summit unique even the, the view of the summit is the same for all but it's not quite the same for all because each of the all at the summit got there on their own unique path therefore each snowflake is unique but they're all perfectly symmetrical they're all h2o they're all perfectly geometrically perfect uh, you know perfectedly perfect, crystalline, symmetrical, but uh, not the same. So the view is the same, the awareness is the same in a sense, but even that somewhat unique. So how to reconcile that, I don't know, but that's something I seems to be. And he said, when we think of it, it's difficult to understand the personality of Maharaj, because he's not the so-called holy man, in quotes. As for his food habits, he was a non-vegetarian initially, and later became a vegetarian. It is said that he had an innocent fondness for sweets, such as Puranpoli and Srikand. Persons who were his neighbors somehow were reluctant to talk about his early days. Even Maharaj was reluctant to talk about himself as an individual. Because it's just boring, actually, to talk about yourself when you... With, with some freedom from the sense of self, uh, it's kind of boring to fall, boring and, and con- contracted, to make a big deal of the, the, the times of a greater deluded self. A greater freed self is not interested in the, the uh, recounting of the times of the greater bound, contracted sense of self or being just doesn't, you know, it's like I don't want to put my head into a small hole and leave it there for three hours. Why? I mean, I think it's somewhat like that. I'm not claiming anything for myself, nothing at all. Please, don't think that way. But I have some sense, I think I know where he's coming from. So, even Maharaj was reluctant to talk about himself as an individual. And, again, some people get into spiritual bypass. (laughs) That's another matter. One significant statement made by him is... Quote, I consider myself as a male human being who got married and had children, then met my guru, and after this initiation, I came to know I was absolute Brahman. Something like that. That's pretty straightforward. Next section called Daily Program. Let me see the time. All right, we're all right. Maharaj was a stickler for discipline and punctuality. The program for the day will start and end on time. 
He used to get up at 4 a.m., and after finishing his ablutions, ritual uh, purification, he will do kakada arti, morning worship. Arti is the waving of the incense or fire, or the incense waving before deity. Kakada arti, morning worship. And so this is, there are, there are bracketed explanations here for some of the Sanskrit, which are one way of translating. <laughs> there are other translations for uh, the Sanskrit that he's putting into translations in brackets. So he would do his kakada arti to his guru's photo. There will not be anyone in the loft room at the time, and his veneration for his guru was such that during the course of the arti, he will go into a trance and will get back to his consciousness only after an hour. At 5 a.m. he'll go down when the members of the household were still asleep and open his BD shop. He will sell BDs and other articles like pan, betel nut, supari, and lottery tickets. After some time, his son will come to take charge, and then Maharaj will retire to the loft room. Beautiful, beautiful story. At 7.30 a.m. there will be meditation, followed by reading of the great Marathi volume Tasbud by Swami Ramdas and other books on the lives of saints like Eknat and Tukaram. Tulkaram. I believe Tulkaram was... Um, no, I don't know. But uh, saints like Eknat and Tulkaram. At 8.30 a.m. there will be bhajans, and it's translated here as devotional singing, um, for an hour with other devotees. The bhajans will be in Pandarpur style, of a certain place and type, ecstatic, and Maharaj will join the bhajan dance and forget himself. This is 8.30 in the morning. At 10 a.m., he will get ready to receive the visitors, some of whom will be foreigners. It was an interesting sight to see Maharaj dance in ecstasy, forgetting himself, and the atmosphere will be surcharged. <laughs> There's some typos in this text. The atmosphere will be not surcharged, but supercharged, with such great joy that some of the foreigners waiting will also join the bhajans and enjoy the company of Maharaj. And so, this was a daily routine. Um, going on, Maharaj, before starting his talk, will look round to see who have all come. He said once that he was not very happy with devotees who came there just to gaze at him mechanically without asking any questions, even though Maharaj would persuade him to do so, meaning they would persuade those devotees to ask questions, just like we saw with the reminiscences of, of David. And so a lot of this, you know, <laughs> will touch on points David Godman wrote, uh, brought up um, in his reminiscences. To such persons, those who just want to gaze at him, he used to say that instead of spending more time with him, it's better for them to get into some ashram and start their sadhana, spiritual practice, or practices. This he had to do, this he had to do because there was no space in the loft room for the earnest seekers, some of whom came from distant foreign countries. They felt disappointed and had to go down the stairs and stand in the room below for want of space. Maharaj felt very sorry for such people, and hence he devised a rule that persons other than earnest seekers should stay away after ten days with him and give room to the newcomers. Very often the loft room will be packed to capacity, but Maharaj will be happy and talk to them in the usual way, his usual way, with vigor. He was certainly vigorous. 
<clears throat> he mildly apologized for want of proper place or space. At noon, Maharaj will close the first session and request the devotees to come at 3 p.m. for the second session. When they came back, he will talk again to them, answering questions, and very often put questions to draw them out. Maharaj's talks in Marathi language used to be translated into English, and Maharaj's answers were taped by many of the devotees gathered there. A few books written in Marathi mentioning Maharaj's answers to the various questions put by devotees have been made available to me. I am distinctly of the opinion that Maharaj's teachings are better understood in the Marathi language than in English. No doubt. They have a beauty of their own. <clears throat> and so it's totally normal, normative, that much is lost in translation. I mean, I, I, I would probably say that nine out of ten translators are not excellent. I mean, some of them may be good enough, uh, some of them are probably quite poor, meaning they add words, they take out words, they think that it's a personal uh, art project. Um, nine out of ten are not excellent, I'd say, from what I've seen, my experience with, with several dozen translators in Japan and other countries. Nine out of ten are not excellent. They may be okay, they may be good enough for most people, uh, but only one out of ten or less would be called excellent, I'd say. And that's the reason that, ultimately, um, translations um, miss much, while the original is where you really find it. So, then, next section, Maharaja's teachings. It's a very short section here. Before I go into teachings, Mr. Rao says, I consider it necessary to mention that Maharaj did not encourage people who went to him for advice in regard to material benefits meaning he's not, he's not come to me and I'll help you materially. He gave solace to any tormented soul and to such persons who were genuinely interested with adhyatmic. Adhyatmic. It's a strange word. Adhyatmic matters. I could just say admanic also. Admanic matters. He wrote adhyatmic. It means of adhya or I think of Atma. Maharaj did not favor any one religion, either Christianity, Hinduism, or Buddhism. He often said that, quote, he is, quote, anxious to present a spiritual mirror in which we could, if only we seriously wish to, see our own true image. Right? So he's a mirror for true nature. He not, did not encourage people, particularly foreigners coming every day to his loft room, to sit gazing at him for hours on end without any participation in the discussion. Right? We saw that with David's write-up too. However, he was sympathetic to them, and he spoke kindly asking them to attend his talks for ten days, which he considered was enough for them, and that they should then go to an ashram, stay there, and examine his teaching seriously, if really they desired to get any benefit at all. So, it's a, it's a tough job, you know, <laughs> being a guru, I'd imagine. Um, some part of the people coming in want to use you. <laughs> they just want um, uh, a warm room, a safe, dry room to sit in. And some want entertainment, as we saw with David's story too. Some want entertainment. Some are just there to, to pick apart and criticize. Some are scornful. Some want material benefit. 
some just need a place to cool their their shoes, cool their uh, souls, um, and some are seeking, but some like to argue. <laughs> some of the seekers like to argue. They really enjoy arguing. And then you have only a very, very few who um, have any notion of what pure love devotion is and, and have true, uh, the, the, the true uh, seeking bhakti love um, desire uh, for complete freedom. And I think that, that you know, uh, the, the, the quality, the, the speed and efficiency and quality of progression on path totally depends on the... Um, I mean, Nityananda called it, you know, it, it's bhakti. Uh, bhakti is not just love. I love you, guru. It's actually a longing for liberation. It, how much do you love freedom? If you love freedom, you'll love truth. If you love truth, you'll sit through the pain uh, at some of the truth you find. If you really love freedom, you will be keenly aware of bondage. If you, if you love moksha, or you are keenly aware of dukkha uh, and pain, you will be able, I mean, you will progress rapidly. Uh, keenly aware of dukkha, keenly aware of, of binding, of, of limitation, of um, dissatisfaction. Um, one may be loving liberation more. And, and the one who progresses throws away garbage. Has, has, the one who progresses fast, the one out of a hundred, or maybe one out of a thousand, that came to any guru, that, um, you know, <laughs> who? Uh, Sariputra and Mahamogalana, the two chief disciples, or any of the gurus themselves, were... Um, best and brightest students of their own gurus. So these gurus had gurus before they became gurus. And um, in the community of the disciples of their guru, they were one of those who, um, who could surrender to pure love, who, who ended up with pure love devotion to their guru because of their love of freedom, their longing for complete and perfect liberation and emancipation or enlightenment awakening. You know, because awakening, enlightenment, is not exactly a mental thing. You know, it's a full being thing. It's a full body, mind, body, spirit, total being um, liberation. <laughs> total being um you know, leap into the boundless and make it your home, or fly into the sun. Fly fully into the sun and become one with the sun. It's that kind of total, it's a totalistic or a total um, attainment. The totality of attainment is the totality of um, being fused back to infinity, return to infinity, return to source. Um, and And by that, um, all sorts of uh, unnecessaries uh, are dropped along the way, you know, slowly or rapidly. Generally going to be rapidly. And so the more 
the, the faster the ascent or uh, path progression, the more the the being. I mean, it's a demonstration of the being of of natural vairagya, natural renunciation, natural dropping of the unnecessaries, which means thought, word, and deed. <laughs> Unnecessary patterns of thought and word, speech, and deed, doing. Activities, preferences, attachments, gone, gone, bum, 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 bum. And I'm not saying I'm anything. I'm just saying this is what I see in the headlights. I see a head uh, by my headlight. By my headlights, or my my one headlight and two headlights, um, what seems to be is that... Um, Detachment and vairagya, renunciation, dropping, comes naturally by attainment and naturally uh, furthers attainment. And that comes, uh, it happens naturally to the one that, that is keenly aware of bondage and dukkha and, and above all seeks freedom and um, return home, the homecoming return. So, um, knowing that, or something like that, perhaps, I don't know his mind, but knowing um, that ardent, ardent, ardency, A-R-D-E-N, not, not the other ardent, ardern, not that one, that thing, but ardent, ardency, <laughs> um, sincerity. In, in seeking, sincere, truly, deeply sincere seeking, profound, profoundly sincere, earnest seeking, um, um, is, is not going to be necessarily born by somebody sitting in his room endlessly staring at him. It may grow, but actually people need to be thrown back on their own distortions and um, feel the pain of your distorted mind. And then your vision of the guru or the or attainment, um, the the like tempering the uh, blade edge of the steel, you know, sword of of total selfhood or something, or because there is no substantial self, but it's really mind, body, spirit. You can say tempering between. Um, What's the fire? The fire of um, <laughs> the fire of uh, facing one's pain, and the water of being with a guru or being in the ashram uh, field of of light, the Buddha field of a guru. Whatever it is, there's an alternation between go off and and meet your distortions and move through them. And be in the guru in the field of bliss um, in the Buddha field. There, there's some kind of alternation, and that tempers the seeker. Anyway, um, Mr. Rao explains his own perspective and says, "I have a feeling that Maharaj did so for two reasons. His loft room was too small to accommodate the growing crowd of foreign and Indian devotees. That's his first reason. The second reason, he believes." which appeals to me is that Maharaj enjoyed questions put by real seekers who want their doubts to be cleared and did not want a dumb crowd of devotees who usually come to the ashram more to be in the presence of the Great One than to get the benefit of philosophical talk which emanated from Maharaj. 
And so, yeah, to um, get rid of the insincere. Uh, he wanted, he, you know, he, he wanted um, sincerely sought deep dialogue. And he was a brilliant teacher. And uh, he enjoyed argument. It's not really argument, it's really dialogue. It's, it's intensive dialogue. Uh, he enjoyed that back and forth. Uh, and he didn't want people getting spaced out just staring at him. <laughs> and again, like I said, um, there are the majority of seekers are nearly none of the seekers um, are bullseye centered, meaning their longing for complete liberation, awakening is total. Uh, that one, you know, or that, that they're going to make great attainment in the future, in this lifetime. That's not that common for anyone. And so in the community, there are very few um, greatest of disciples, like <laughs> Mahamogalana and Sariputta for Gautama. So, next chapter. Pearls from Maharaj's lips. In one of the morning sessions, when he found a local Marathi gentleman sitting in front of him in the crowded loft room, Maharaj mildly admonished him, saying, quote, You only know how to sing bhajans. How could you understand what I'm telling these visitors, some of whom have come from far distances? End quote. And it goes on, I must mention here that unless one is attuned to Maharaj's abstruse sayings on the subject of, quote, beingness, one will be lost in confusion when they read the questions and answers of Maharaj. No doubt it is a very slow process, involving critical study of Maharaj's way of thinking and his approach to the realities of life. But it's much echoed by other gurus and the raw material and Gautama. And so there are more than a few uh, great ones who've shared their their teachings on reality and path. Um and beingness, you know, transformation of beingness or uh, uh, self-investigation, atma vichara, is uh, key. He goes on, I will now proceed to give a few instances which will help us in understanding his teachings. I call it a preparatory course for my readers. I will first refer to Maharaja's concept of vital breath, prana. When a visitor asked whether it is in the flowers also, Maharaja's answer was, quote, Not only in flowers, but even in their color and fragrance, it is everywhere. So prana is everywhere. Because it's not a, it's not a physical matter. It's um, the light basis of energy and matter. All energy fields and all matter, their life livingfulness is prana. And that's um, pranaba, actually. I will first refer, so he said that, I said that. Okay, not only in flowers, but over, even in their fragrance and color, it is everywhere. Quote, one should aspire for the desireless state and not bargain with God by doing penance and repetition of sacred words or syllables, japa or to acquire something spiritual, you know, doing so to acquire something spiritual, end quote. Maharaj called this desireless state as Purna Brahman, Paramatman, 
or Pam Parameshvara. Paramesh Pam Parameshvara. I have to deal with <laughs> some new words and also some variant spellings of uh, Sanskrit into English. Purna Brahman. Some see so funny. Some people say Brahman N. Brahman with an N. Some people say Brahmam with an M. Nobody knows if it's an M or an N because everybody speaks a little differently. Purna Brahmam. Paramatmam. Not Matman. So there's Atman and Atmam. Both are the same, but just a different spelling. And Parameshvara. Like Param Ishvara. You know, the great, the ultimate Ishvara, the ultimate Atman, or Purnabaraman. And that is the desireless stage, he said. At another stage, while, or another position, explaining the concept that, quote, you're not the body nor the mind, he recited a verse of Guru Nanak, which runs as follows. This is good stuff. Quote, O mind, what are you searching what are you searching inside and outside? It is one only. Once the earthen pot bearing the name Nanak is broken by getting rid of the concept that I am the body, where then is the inside and outside? It is only, quote, I prevailing everywhere. Right on. Guru Nanak was one of the super heavy hitters and... Um, Worthy of another series, no doubt. So I repeat it. O mind, what are you searching for inside and outside? It is one only. Once the earthen pot bearing the name Nanak is broken by getting rid of the concept that, quote, I am the body, where then is the inside and outside? It is only I prevailing everywhere. Indeed. Guru Nanak further says, quote, Like the fragrance in a flower, like an image in a mirror, this sense of I am-ness is felt in the body. Right. Therefore, give up your name, Nanak, and also your identity with the body, and abide in the sense of I am-ness. You shall be liberated. Personally, I don't know if you keep thinking. Abiding in the sense of I amness is not repeatedly thinking I am. Clearly, in my view. So, um, if you, his advice, abide in the sense of I amness, is not an attachment to thinking I am witness. It is not repeated thinking. So, I'm not actually sure, Mr. Scott, I'm not sure how one abides in the sense of I am-ness without repeatedly thinking. Because when there's, um, you know, a t- equanimity, the minute there's thinking I am, the equanimity is broken by the thinking. No? So there is silence of mind at a steady state, which I'd say is equanimity. But um, it doesn't have I amness, or does it? I don't know. It seems there is no. You're not gonna. One may have a sense of I amness, but how can it be independent of repeated thinking I am? Which is simply thinking. Which is fine. You want to think, think. 
but that's bounded and it's the same anacha nitaduka anicha nataduka anacha anicha nataduka impermanent insubstantial and dissatisfactory to keep thinking i am i am i am i am atma vichara that's what it was called so different people write everything differently and say everything differently <laughs> or they say the same things differently actually so atma vichara um as self-inquiry, inquiry of Atma, um, is not about repeatedly thinking I am. So how do you abide in the sense of I amness? That's, a, you know, it, it's really quite of a, of, it's a kind of mystery or paradox. Or it's, I mean, I'm, what the hell do I know? I don't know very much, really, but um, I don't think you can abide in I amness without repeatedly thinking I am. And that ain't the way, as far as I know. <laughs> keep thinking I am eh. and that's and he also talked directly against some attachment to the witness position of mind or the witness some sense of I am witnessing I am witnessing I am witnessing that's not freedom either so abide in the sense anyway you know I am not Guru Nanak so he's above me so what what can I say but I'll repeat his phrase again like the fragrance in a flower like an image in the mirror this sense of I amness is felt in the body, indeed. Therefore, give up your name, Nanak, whatever your name is, you too, and also your identity with the body, and abide in the sense of I amness. You shall be liberated. I just, again, I don't know what that means, uh, other than thinking I am repeatedly. Below are a section of teachings, a selection of teachings from Maharaj, Nisargadat. And... Let me just see something. Okay, I'll read some of these, or maybe all of these, and maybe I'll read all of them and not comment, and then we'll close, and then next week come back to this. So here are some of these teachings from Yisargadat. Quote, It is a matter of actual experience that the self has being independent of mind and being, of mind and body. Sorry. It is a matter of actual experience that the self, capital S, has being independent of mind and body. It is being awareness bliss, also called Satchitananda. Awareness of being is bliss. Awareness of being is Satchit. One must merge back into self, capital S, which is the highest, most blissful state, a qualitative consciousness. Next. Do not get entangled in the branches and leaves. Go to the seed. Without the seed, the tree will not be there. Find out where the tree comes from. This is where I am taking you back. Source. Next. True happiness cannot be found in things that change and pass away. Pleasure and pain alternate inexorably. Right? Sukadukkha. Happiness comes from the self, capital S, and can be found in the self only. Find your real self, and all else will come with it. Next. Even among the crowd, be alone. Abide in your own self. Do not neglect this body. This is the house of God. Take care of it. Only in this body can God be realized. Next. It is the nature of mind to roam about. All you can do is to shift the focus of consciousness beyond the mind. 
refuse all thoughts except one, the thought, I am. The mind will rebel in the beginning, but with patience and perseverance it will yield and keep quiet. Once you are quiet, things will begin to happen spontaneously and quite naturally, without any interference on your part. Okay, so it's a practice of repeating the thought I am. Refuse all thoughts except one, the thought I am. So I guess that's the practice being taught here. Keep repeating the thought I am. That's like uh, using I am as mantra. Okay. Going on. Next. You are the self here and now. Leave the mind alone. Stand aware and unconcerned. And you will realize that to stand alert but detached, watching events as they come and go, is an aspect of your real nature. Next. You people come here wanting something. What you want may be knowledge with a capital K knowledge, the higher truth. But nonetheless, you do want something. Most you, most of you have been coming here for quite some time. Why? If there had been a perception to what I have been saying, you should have stopped coming here long ago. Maybe, but actually, if somebody has awakening and still loves him, <laughs> they would want to stay with him. I would. You can find, next, you can find what you have lost but you cannot find what you have not lost. When you are searching it, when you are searching, it shows that you believe you have lost something. But who believes it? And what is believed to be lost, or to have been lost? Have you lost a person like yourself? What is this self, capital S, which you are in search of? What exactly do you expect to find? Yeah, that's a very important perspective. People think they've lost something. We do, and so we're searching. Search, search, search. What do you think? Next. What a fantastic subject this is. The subject is elusive. Or illusory. The person who thinks he is listening is illusory. And yet nobody believes that he does not exist. Right. There is something going on here. <clears throat> when you come here, I welcome you and extend to you my humble hospitality. But in doing so... I am fully aware of the exact position that there is neither a speaker nor a listener. Why is it that nobody can honestly say that he does not exist because he knows that he is present, or rather, he is that intuitive sense of presence? I repeat that last line. Why is it that nobody can honestly say that he does not exist because he knows that he is present, or rather... He is that intuitive sense of presence. It's a strange sentence. <clears throat> you see, you can't say I don't exist. But you can't say that I am mind and body. You can say that I is. I is. Of course I is. That's about the most one can say. Or that's maybe the least. Or the most which is a least. It's the most because it's the least distorted. I is. Not I am, of course not. <laughs> In my view, right? Who am I? I is. This I here thinks that that is a much better formulation than I am. I is. Because it ain't me. It is. It's I-ness. It's I. And that's the same I for all. Uh, our true nature is the same. Meanwhile, each one will uh, come to it uniquely and then express it uniquely. You know, each drop of water is unique, and it's the same material. 
How can that be? Mm, that's weird. So I think he's saying something like that. Why is it that nobody can honestly say he does not exist because he knows that he's present? Meaning, uh, nobody, why is it that indeed, honestly, nobody can say, I don't exist because everybody does know that he is present or I is present or I am here or something like that, right? This is a speaker. Or rather, that he is that intuitive sense of presence. Exactly. I is presence. I is, we can define it as unbound presence. You've got something better than that? <laughs> I don't. Going on. Oh, wait. Maybe we won't go on. Where are we? Okay. Let me see something. I'll read the last, just to close it out. It's beautiful stuff. I like arguing with him, too. You people have been coming here hoping all the time that I'd give you a program of what you should do in order to get liberation. But what I keep telling you is that there is no entity as such and that the question of bondage does not arise. If one is not bound, then there is no need for liberation. All I can do is to show you that all I can do is to show you that what you are is not what you think you are. Right. I is not what this one here thinks I am. I is not what I think I am. All I can do is show you that you are... All I can do is to show you that what you are is not what you think you are. What you are is not what you think you are. What I is is not what we think I... or what we think we are. Right. Meanwhile, there's definitely a feeling of bondage. <laughs> there, you can say, yes, uh, I is never... I is unbound. Sure. But I, Scott, or personally feel bindage here and there. Going on, I repeat, he goes on, I repeat, I was not, am not, shall not be a body. To me, this is a fact. I too was under the illusion of having been born, but my guru made me see that birth and death are mere ideas. Birth is merely the idea, I have a body, and death is the idea, I have lost my body. The idea basically gives rise to the experience, by the way. Experience is idea-based. Mm-hmm. Because it's some kind of, it's a fashioned, it's a fashioned composite. Experience is fashioned by idea. Mm. Perception, conception, experience. So perceived, so conceived, thus experienced. So the idea I have a body, the idea I've lost my body, is the basis of the experience, so-called experience of those. So-called, <laughs> like it's a, as if I, as, as if experience is objective. Experience is super subjective. Now. When I know I am not a body, the body may be there or may not. What difference does it make? The body-mind is like a room. It is there, but I need not live in it all the time. The next four. Until man can free himself from false identifications, from pretensions and delusions of various kinds, he cannot come face-to-face with eternal verity that is latent within his own self. So this... English, eternal verity. Uh, what? Is, is uh, Tatsat? Obviously, uh, verity with a capital V meaning an absolute truth. Eternal verity, timeless, absolute truth. Could be, obviously, uh, Sat. You know, uh, Samasat or <laughs> Sat-Sat. Um, 
until a man can free himself from false identifications, from pretensions, right, fakery, and delusions, meaning self-deceptions, of various kinds, he cannot come face to face with eternal verity that is latent within his own self, or his true nature. The only awakening or enlightenment, he goes on, the only illusory liberation or an illusory bondage, the awakening from, oh God, the only awakening or enlightenment, the only illusory liberation or an illusory bondage, they drop the word, is the awakening from the living dream. What is it, what is it a guru can do? A self-realized guru will do the only thing that could be done, which is to point towards Satguru within. The Satguru, true guru, absolute reality guru. The Satguru is there always, whether you remember him or not. Then, direct experience of self is by its very nature inexpressible. Bing, 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 bing. No words, I am, I am. Direct experience of self is by very nature inexpressible. Images are built of words, and by words they're also destroyed. You got yourself into your present state through verbal thinking. You must get out of it the same way. And that's um, the basis of his method, actually. Um, fight fire with fire. Fight the delusive um, mental conceivings by fiery um, sat, uh, tatsat conceiving. You know, he's talking words, too, you know. But uh, they come with the fire of his awakening. Finally, for today, quote, What has been attained may again be lost. Only when you realize the true peace, sat, what, uh, sat shanti, uh, mahashanti, only when you realize mahashanti, the peace you've never lost, that peace will remain with you, for it was never away. Instead of searching for what you do not have, find out what is it that you have never lost. Beautiful phrase. Instead of searching for what you do not have, find out what it is that you've never lost. That, that's why he's a king of teachers. That which is there before the beginning and after the ending of everything, to that, to tat, to tat, there is now birth or death. That immovable state, which is not affected by the birth and death of a body or a mind, that state you must perceive. And that will end today on that beautiful quote. Instead of searching for what you think you do not have, find out what it is indeed you've never lost. If I may be so bold as to add a couple of words. So instead of searching for what you imagine and think you don't have. Find out what indeed you've never lost. All right? All right. So that's it for today. <clears throat> so thank you, uh, Mr. Rao and Misagadat, and for you and everyone involved in this. Thank you for being here. Uh, next week we'll pick up probably... Uh, to read over that final teaching and then continue with the bio. So take good care of yourself. See you next time and good night. <laughs>